We'll take a couple minutes and look at, uh, I think, an element of Jesus' ministry uh, that may, we may not spend a lot of time contemplating. Uh, this is one of those areas, I suppose, of teaching that's sort of been assigned to me and uh, in the work that's upcoming, the Lord willing, in Sierra Leone. Uh, Steve gave me some things to speak about that I had to study about, so and I think this is probably one of those that falls into that category. Uh, but the title of the lesson is, What is Jesus Doing Now? Uh, we understand historically what the Bible teaches about Jesus Christ uh, and that he came to this earth, born of a virgin, came to this earth, lived upon this earth uh, in full human flesh, that he taught, uh, ministered, healed the sick, performed miracles, uh, that he was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, buried in a new tomb, and then on the third day, according to what the Bible teaches, he came out of that grave. Uh, our faith is based upon uh, an absolute confidence that Jesus uh, came out of the tomb and that Jesus' tomb remains unoccupied to this day, that Jesus is not dead, that he is alive. And sometimes our thinking about that uh, from the standpoint of Jesus himself sort of ends there. Uh, maybe that's a bad way to put it, but maybe we don't put a lot of effort into thinking about uh, Jesus Christ in the context of his further work. When it comes to the activity of God, if I'm reading this correctly, at least in terms of maybe from my own experience, when it comes to the activity of God, I think that we probably pay less attention to what we would consider to be the work of Jesus than we do to the other persons of, uh, of deity, uh, that we usually uh, tend to credit the Father with some of what I think of as the more generic God functions uh, from creation on, and the aspect of even the answer to prayer and so on. Uh, and we often consider and even debate over the activity of the Holy Spirit as to what the Spirit's doing, whether he dwells within us um, personally, whether he performs miracles or not, uh, and the power that the Holy Spirit does. And we, There's a lot to be considered in both of those areas, not only the work of the Father, but as well the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of biblical study. But what about Jesus? I think sometimes our perception might be that he's in heaven at the right hand of God just kind of hanging out waiting for the Father to tell him to come back and then he'll come back and judge the world. But he's just kind of sitting back waiting or watching what's going on. And then we don't really consider this aspect of the work of Jesus in our behalf or the work of Jesus in the context of the work of God. Uh, when Jesus was speaking to the Jews, but primarily on the aspect of uh, him healing on the Sabbath and their mis- misapplications of the Sabbath law, he said there that my father, I work and my Father works even unto this day. Now Jesus, and I think in attaching himself to the work of the Father, was in essence claiming to be God before them, whether they got that or not. But the idea that God was going to continue to work even unto the day that they were in and even unto our day was certainly implicit in what Jesus was saying. The thing that Jesus is not doing anything or is simply waiting for a coming time in which he will activate his judgment upon the earth and return, I believe is a serious misunderstanding. Uh, Jesus is active today uh, in our behalf, uh, working for you and I. If I'm a Christian, then my hope of eternal life is dependent upon not only understanding that, but as well, I think, having a great deal of confidence and trust in what Jesus provides for us. So that's what we'll look at a little bit tonight, is what is Jesus doing now from the standpoint of what the scriptures teach. Well, one place to start is, I think, something we talked about earlier, and that is, where is Jesus now? Uh, There are many who think that Jesus died on a Roman cross and was buried in the tomb, and that he never came out of that tomb. Or there may be those who who would take the perspective that maybe he was resurrected, but then died at a later time, such as Lazarus or others who did. 
uh, and there's some of the uh, the new theology that's uh, not new, but it's called new theology, sort of in terms of uh, modern culture. Is that Jesus uh, moved to Spain, married Mary Magdalene, had some children. Uh, and as bizarre as that thinks to us, as that seems to us from the standpoint of the biblical teaching, we do need to have to come to grips with what the Bible teaches about where is Jesus now. The apostles, I believe, were absolutely confident of where Jesus was after he left this earth and in terms of his, his absence from them. And they testified clearly that he had ascended back to heaven. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, verse 51, it came to pass while he blessed them, talking about the disciples, that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, And when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up, a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up in heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the angel himself told the apostles, Jesus has gone back to heaven, that he ascended in. I don't think they visibly saw him enter into heaven itself as a place, but they saw him go up and ascend. And there's certainly biblical evidence, certainly to the apostles in the voice of God himself, that that's where Jesus was. Not only is he in heaven, but the apostles preach consistently that Jesus was at the right was at the right hand of God, and that he as well is there even today. In Mark chapter sixteen, verse nineteen, uh, so then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So all of the synoptic gospels mention that Jesus ascended back to heaven. Mark mentions further here that he ascended back to heaven to the right hand of God. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means, but understand that that's, what, that's clearly the unified statement of Scripture. There's not any controversy uh, or difficulty in understanding what the Bible teaches about that. The apostles certainly later on preached that as an integral element of the gospel message. That Jesus not only had, had risen from the dead, but that where he was now was at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching the first sermon said, Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, on him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter says the location of Jesus, where Jesus was at that moment, was central to the gospel message. Not only did it confirm the aspect that he had come out of the grave and, was, and wasn't uh, dead, as maybe as some of them still supposed, but that God had exalted him. He was now beyond the human realm, and he was at the right hand of God. And I believe that in the context of that statement, that that's part of the elements of what he says here when he received, the, he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, a promise that was made to Jesus that he would receive a kingdom, had now been fulfilled. So Jesus being at the right hand of God, was clear indication that the kingdom had arrived. Now what the, the terminology, the right hand of God, signifies is this position of highest rank. If you were at a king's right hand, you were his right hand man. You were the gentleman you see, or the person who uh, would execute his orders, the person who had his authority, who could speak for him. If you were on the left hand, then that was not the same, or as high as being on the right hand. We think about uh, Peter and James and John saying, where, where are we going to be uh, when your kingdom comes? Uh, we want to be on your right hand. So that's the image. 
Peter, I think, utilizes this as he talks about Jesus Christ when he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, "...who has gone into heaven as at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him." So the right hand of God is a position of authority where others, even very high, you see, ranking individuals, even spiritual entities, are subject to you. In Ephesians, Paul says that he worked in Christ Christ when he raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So it isn't hard for us to conclude that when Jesus ascended back to the Father, He ascended back to the Father for the purpose of receiving a kingdom, sitting on a throne, and exercising authority. Not just any authority, but all authority. And so so, uh, that's one of the elements that's involved in understanding, I believe, the work of Jesus today. How we're to perceive of who Jesus is uh, and where He is today and what He does for us. But more to the question I want to consider is what is Jesus doing now? I believe that, that, that if we don't consider that and put serious consideration in that, we may come away with sort of a perception, maybe not intentionally, but maybe unconsciously a perception that, uh, that the gospel is all about what happened in the past. And if, and if we have that perception, then how does that portray to those we would teach the gospel to, to those who are out in the world or maybe who, who are not familiar with biblical text or the story of the Bible? That we, that we talk eloquently and, and very biblically to them about the fact that Jesus came to this earth and that he lived a perfect life and that he performed miracles and that he died on the cross for our sins and that he resurrected from the dead and we stop there, then their faith is rooted in what Jesus has done and what God has done and that's certainly good. But over a period of time it may very well be that that would grow stale in a person's mind as they went about to live the Christian life. So like, well that's fine and dandy but what have you done for me lately? Particularly when persecution comes in and when, when difficulty comes in and when we have to put into practice the, the authority of Jesus Christ in our life as Christians. What sustains us in those times of difficulty? Well, certainly one thing that, uh, that provides real, I think, uh, encouragement to us and strength is the fact that uh, God expects us to work and He's working as well. Uh, and that as we strive to live, to, to live for Christ, Jesus is always there with us. And that certainly portends to what Jesus told his apostles when he was going to leave them and he understood what he would, the fact that he was going to physically leave them. He not only gave them a job to do and a commission to go into all the world, but he says, I'm going to be with you always. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that, I think, was to be a great encouragement to them. Well, the Bible presents several things about the aspect of the present work of Christ. One is that Jesus is upholding He's upholding in the sense that he's holding together the universe. Now, there are statements that are made in the scriptures, particularly Colossians chapter 1, uh, that talk about Jesus, where Paul's explaining the, the, the person of Jesus Christ to the Colossian brethren. That, I believe, can be understood in any other way than knowing that Jesus is God, and that he is divine, he is, that he is deity, that he is the express image of the person of divinehood, uh, that he has all preeminence, and as well, it says in verse chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, talking about Jesus, that He is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, what the writer of Hebrews says very well corresponds to what Paul says in the book of Colossians. Now, it is not only that Jesus is God, but that he's actively involved even in the created world. Uh, and Paul's 
statement in Colossians, he says that there's nothing that's been created that wasn't created by him. And in this passage, it talks about this aspect of upholding all things. Paul's statement is that in him all things consist. And those two statements, I think, are very well uh, synonymous in, the, in understanding the activity of Jesus, or his, certainly his relationship to creation. Now, creation is a concept, I think, that uh, you know that we maybe would somewhat easily accept, or something maybe we've uh, we've certainly come to grips with. If that's the way to put it, settled our minds on the aspect that everything we see around us was made by God. But do we put much consideration in the fact that the ability that this world has to continue to exist is not only put in the hands of God, but continually put in the hands of God. The author, I think, is expressing in Hebrews the superiority, the uniqueness of Jesus in the context of deity. That the only one who can create the world is God. The only one who can uphold the world is God. John 1, the, 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 John the, the Apostle said that Jesus was as the Word, with God in the beginning, and was God, and that nothing was made that He did not create, and that Jesus continues to administer over what is inherently His creation. He upholds it. The word uphold in the Greek language here means to carry, or to bear along, or to bring forth. So you uphold something by by carrying it from one place to another, by putting it on your shoulders and bearing it. And so that's the image, is that the creation exists, but it continues to move along. It continues to carry along because Jesus upholds it. One translation says, He sustains it. The NIV uses the term sustain. The New Century Version uses the term holds together all things. Now the deist is wrong. The deist who comes along and, and, and adequately says that God created all the world, but that he, like a person who makes a watch, puts all the pieces together and winds it up and sets it down and then leaves it alone, fails to understand this aspect of creation. There is a sense in which the created world is meant to function on its own, that there are laws of nature that work in conjunction with other laws of nature, and the world itself, and many times, does sustain itself at some certain levels. But at the highest level, that's not true. And certainly, we, we recognize that even today as we get more and more aware uh, through science and through, the, and through education of science, that we get more aware of, what our, uh, of what's out there and what this world is all about and how it's physically put together. That what this world has to have to continue is something that scientifically cannot be in any way identified even today. And that is an ever-increasing infusion of power. Uh, science is baffled by that. That this, not just that this universe exists, but rather even that it continues to exist. Even if we were to take the, the, the evolutionary theory and hold that up and say, this is how we believe the universe began, we're still without any ability to explain how it continues to exist because one of the only things that we can use or certainly one of the most noted things we can use to understand the reality of the universe that we live in is something uh, that maybe you're somewhat familiar with and that's the general theory of relativity and the law of entropy which says basically in terms of matter that matter cannot exist, you see, without a beginning and that matter is not in itself self-sustaining and that all things from, the beginning, from their beginning tend to deteriorate 
that they move from the aspect of organization to chaos and not the other way around. Now that violates the very principle of evolution, but even if I accept the one, it still doesn't, make, it still doesn't answer my question about how does the world continue to exist. And even the evolutionary scientists tend to agree that there has to be some integral separate force that sustains the universe. Typically they talk about dark matter. It's interesting that uh, dark matter is, is something that's never been seen, never been measured, uh, don't even know what it is, but there it is. It's dark matter and that's what sustains the universe. I'm more to the thinking that it's Jesus Christ. Amen. But he's the wielding power that brings the cosmos together and keeps it together. So Jesus is upholding the universe. He's also reigning as king. And this goes to the aspect that he sits on the throne. He continues to exercise authority. He has not stepped down or abdicated to anyone else. In Matthew 28, Jesus said that the Father had given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And that he would be with his disciples to the end of the age. That the angels are subject to him. That all things and all principalities are subject to him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18, he is head over all things to the church which is his body. Now there's an implication there that if, that if I believe that the Lord has a body, then I have to believe that He is actively ruling over it. A body that, doesn't, that has a head that doesn't function is not a living body. If you have a living body and an active body, then the head as well has to be active. It has to be working. It has to be exercising authority. In what way does Jesus exercise authority over His spiritual body? Ephesians chapter 1. I think I have that up here. Paul says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So Paul in this passage says that it's the power of the resurrection, the spiritual power of the resurrection that provides the power or the headship of Jesus Christ over his body. And he sustains that through the regulations of speaking. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But the idea here that Jesus is reigning on his throne is integral to our understanding of the work of Christ. Uh, I've read some interesting, uh, interesting article about this in terms of what this means to the millennial, premillennial theory. There are so many people that have bought into this aspect that Jesus is going to come back to this earth and the city of Jerusalem sit upon a physical throne. Uh, and that that's, what, that that's what the end of the age looks forward to and that that's the real meaning of the coming of the kingdom. And the author was making the point that it seemed a little absurd that if you think about the throne in heaven, you think about Jesus' throne now, and what the millennium says is, well, yeah, he's on a throne, but that's not the real throne. That's not the, that's not the, the white throne that God will, that's not the throne of authority that God will have, that Jesus will have when he comes back again. He says it's sort of like a fellow being inaugurated to, into the White House, and he goes up to the White House, and as soon as the inauguration is over, he moves into a two-bedroom apartment down someplace in Detroit and lives there. <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. If, that if, if, if it's a spiritual kingdom... And Jesus is on the throne, then where is he? And I think that certainly uh, maybe puts it in perspective a little bit. But Jesus also is speaking. Now sometimes we might shy away from this idea that Jesus is speaking because we understand that the revelation of God is an objective revelation that has been given once for all. 
Jude says we should contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered. And God is in the process of mystically or even miraculously making known His will still today. The revelation is sealed. And yet Jesus is also spoken about as being our prophet, as a prophet that speaks in this last times, in these last days. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, God who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. So the writer of Hebrews is even helping us there to identify, and I believe somewhat define the last days here because he says the last days really are this aspect of the last revelation. Well, who's the last spokesman? Well, it's Jesus Christ. The days back, it was it was the, uh, that he spoke to the Father by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And Jesus certainly makes clear that his words would be made known not only to the generation that would hear him speak physically, but the generations that would go on because of the work of the apostles. You'll be my witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the utmost parts of the world. That you and I have the ability to be into the kingdom of God and to know what Jesus teaches, to hear the voice of Jesus, not through some mystical means, but rather through apostolic teaching. And that's what God set up. That's certainly what he intended. To take somehow a position that Jesus intended that, and it's hard to come to any conclusion other conclusion when we look at the scriptures that Jesus but that Jesus intended that his apostles would be his witnesses and ongoing witnesses of future generations, to believe that Jesus intended that, and but then somehow it's been corrupted, that's not happened, you see, uh, is, is, a, is a great divide in the thinking of men. And certainly leads us to some uh, absurd conclusions about the ability of God to protect his own revelation. If God intended that Jesus would be the last spokesman and that Jesus would speak to every generation through the apostolic message, then I suggest that's exactly what's taking place. And that's what Paul affirms in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's no need for any other further revelation. Why? Because God, Jesus, has spoken. And what He has spoken, He has spoken for all time. And certainly that's what God prophesied even in the Old Testament. When, he took, when Moses spoke and said, God will send a prophet like unto me, and if you listen to him, you will be saved. But if you don't listen to him, you'll be cut off. This is it. And so Jesus is still speaking to men today. If he's not, then men cannot be saved. Because it's through the words of Jesus that men are saved. Jesus is also mediating. And I think that this is one of those elements of Jesus' work today, maybe that we spend some time looking at, Certainly it's one that directly connects to Jesus' physical, historical physical work on Calvary. But we may sometimes fail to understand the real significance of Jesus as our advocate, our mediator, the one who intercedes in our behalf. And I make this note. There's a difference, I believe, even in biblical language and, and uh, certainly in, in the concept, the biblical concepts. There's a difference between intercession and mediation. Sometimes we use those words sort of interchangeable and I, want to, I, I, I do note that sometimes uh, it talks about the aspect of Jesus interceding for us. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews uses the term, the Greek term for interceding several times to talk about Jesus Christ. But there are two different words even in the original language from the standpoint of intercession and mediation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 and 6, Paul said there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, one mediator of the new covenant. So there's one mediator of the new covenant. Not many, just one. 
And yet intercession is something that can take place at different levels by different individuals. I might very well in my life have several individuals who would be interceding for me. If you've ever prayed for me, you've interceded for me. And we are to pray for one another and to intercede for one another in, in, in the activity of prayer. And then it even mentions in the scriptures as a, as a definition of prayer that we, are, that we have intercessions. We have prayers and intercessions and prayers of thanksgiving and praise. So intercessory prayer is something that can take place on a level between us. But there's one mediator. And the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus intercedes for us, but he always connects that intercession with the mediatorship of Jesus, the singular mediatorship of Jesus through his blood. That Jesus intercedes for us on our behalf. He steps in between and he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves because he died on the cross and he gave his blood as a propitiation for our sins. Someone has said that intercession is approaching someone else on the third party's behalf. Mediation is helping two people reconcile their differences by bringing something that they could not bring themselves. And I think that's a pretty good way to look at it from the biblical concept. That 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says that Jesus is our advocate. And some translations use the way the word intercessor there. And then he points to the blood of Jesus that was shed for the propitiation of sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. So how does Jesus intercede for me? Does he pray for me? Well, I don't know if he does or not. I don't think the Bible, I don't think the Bible is as clear about that as it is about defining Jesus' intercession and his, and his advocacy on the basis of the fact that his blood is the propitiation for my sins. We just sang a song about that, didn't we not? Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The idea that Jesus not only appeases the wrath of God, but he also, in terms of the giving of his blood, makes me pure. And I think that's certainly what's involved. Jesus is our high priest. And the discussion about Jesus' advocacy, continual intercession for us in the book of Hebrews, focuses on that picture. He mediates for us with his own blood. Not only the fact that he gave it at the cross in a a singular historical account, but that he continues to make intercession. In Hebrews chapter 7, look at Romans first. In Romans chapter 8 through 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Now, I've put that that verse up there first to, to get us to see that in the context, what type of intercession is he talking about here? Is he talking about prayer? Or is rather he talking about the aspect of Jesus' death on the cross and the sacrifice of his blood, that Jesus at the right hand of God making intercession for us through what he did at Calvary? And Hebrew chapter 7 would bear that out. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, I'd underscore the word lives, and we'll look at that as Paul, I think, uses that same word again. The idea that Jesus' continual life, his resurrected, never-ending life, is an integral part of his ability to intercede for us. It's not just that Jesus did something in the past that impacts me today. It's that Jesus did something in the past and continued to do something today that keeps me free from sin. He continues to make intercession for me. And that has to do, ultimately, you see, with the value of his atoning blood. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 29, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then again in Hebrews chapter 9, he's talking about the priesthood. Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. 
the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now I might make a note here about, the, about this aspect of the once for all sacrifice of Christ. I was reading not too long ago some questions on a, on a webpage that the denominational teacher was answering questions that people would submit and one of the questions, this fellow is a Calvinist who believes security and the eternal security of the believer in Calvin's doctrine. And one of the questions that came from a young lady was, if my salvation is fully secure, if there's nothing I can do to impact my salvation and Jesus died for me and I cannot be lost, then why does the Bible say Jesus continues to intercede for me? And I thought, boy, that's a good question. I wish I'd asked that question on that website. Well, he talked about the aspect that what the Bible was really teaching there was not that Jesus was really, really any doing anything right now, but that Jesus had done something that had eternal impact on. Of course, that's not what the text says, and that's certainly not what even the grammar of the text bears out. But you see, the idea that God is continually working for me is an implication like I'm in continual need of the blood of Jesus. If it's a once-for-all thing and it was all sealed before then, then I don't need any more intercession of Jesus Christ. But Jesus continually to make, continues to make intercession for him. And that's what Hebrews points out in, in chapter 7. And then Paul says in Romans, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And the, the terminology there, shall be saved for his life, is not talking about the imputation of Jesus' perfect righteousness to us, but a constant life of intercession on our behalf. I believe the life that he's talking about here is the resurrected life of Jesus, that he ever lives to make intercession for us, as Hebrews chapter 7 points out. So, Jesus mediates. Jesus also is preparing this is thrilling to understand and to contemplate. In John chapter 14, Jesus talking to his apostles said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. One way I think that we can sort of bring this passage home is to consider the Greek grammar uh, which is not necessarily always borne out in the English translation classical Greek does not have a second person plural pronoun but Koine Greek, the Greek that Jesus utilized and was speaking here does have a second person plural pronoun and so what Jesus in that use of that particular grammar might be saying and we might say it like this particularly maybe if we're from uh, from the, the, the states of Dixie is that he doesn't say you in this, he says y'all. You all is what the text literally says. And so the idea here is my father's house are many mansions, I, I would have told you all, I go to a place for you all. Well, who's that include? Well, certainly that included those apostles Jesus was specifically talking to, but the very use of that terminology indicated that Jesus was talking about all of those, you see who would live the Christian experience and follow him, that Jesus was going away in order to prepare all of them a place. That's you and me. And so God is, Jesus has gone away to prepare and he's in the process of preparing a place for me in heaven right now.
making plans for me to come there. That's thrilling, isn't it? When you think about the idea of being away from someone that you'd like to that you'd like to see, and uh, you know you you get in touch with them, and they say, "Man, I really want you to come. I've got your room already. I've straightened it all up, and got a bed place for you. I'm really excited about you coming here. I'm preparing a place for you." Now that's I hope not trivializing what's involved here, but the thought and the perception I believe is rather profound that God desires. To live with us. He desires for us to come. And what he was saying to his apostles. I want you to be with me. I'm going away so that you can be with me. And there won't be anything that gets in the way. If I come again I will receive you to myself. That where I am there you may be also. And so Jesus is making all that ready. He's making all that ready. Not only did he make it possible. By dying on the cross. But he's making it ready. By ascending back to the Father. And awaiting is coming. Now, in conclusion, I think we think about the work of Jesus, we could recognize that that really uh, there's no one on this planet who will ever be exempt from the work of Jesus. Even the aspect of his present work. That the impact of Jesus' work reaches every particular individual. Those who are in Christ Jesus will inherit the promises of God and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to reconcile them back to the Father. They will get what they will get at the end because of what Jesus not only has done, but what Jesus continued to do through the whole time that they lived on this earth and served Him. And Jesus will not fail to save those who come to Him. That's what Hebrews 10 points out. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. The other element of that, though, is that those who are not in Christ, those who reject or rebel against God who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, will not be exempt from the work of Christ. It's not like Jesus is going to give these folks something, but he's not going to give these folks something. But Jesus has something that he's working on, and certainly that's a part of his work, that will impact those who rebel against him, and that's judgment. Because all authority to judge the world has been put in the hands of the Son. And he will come. John, put, John the Baptist, I think, predicted Jesus' authority to judge in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, when he's talking about the Messiah. He said, Jesus Christ, he says, his winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather wheat into his barn. But the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what He has done, whether good or bad. Jesus' work is judgment. In, God, in, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Peter made it clear that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Uh, because He's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteous by the man whom he has ordained. And that's Jesus, our Lord. So, Jesus is at work. He is working on our behalf so that we might be saved and join him in heaven. He's at work in his authority on his throne to make sure that when the, all of this comes to a consummation, that justice will be served. And those who are evil will be expelled from the presence of God and God's glory and his honor will be vindicated. Jesus will have done the work of the Father in all of that. Are you in Christ Jesus? You have an advocate who intercedes in your behalf. You have one that's mediating for you. You have an individual you see who is reigning over as king in the kingdom that you're a part of. You cannot 
in any way benefit from the activity of from the beneficial activity of Jesus unless you're in Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. You have to be baptized in order to receive the benefits of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're calling upon those who are not Christians tonight to think seriously about that. That you need to, as the people of the first century did when they came to Christ, that very same pattern, confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord based upon your faith in Him. And then repent of your sins. Make a determination to turn away from what is wrong to what is right. And to be buried in the water and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And God promises you new life. Jesus promises to intercede with His blood and forgive you. And we want in every way to help you do that. Let's stand and say.